Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent, and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He's the master strategist and always directs our path. God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said He wants that. And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory. Uh, there's a way the world does business and there's a way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and His creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his call to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa podcast, where we spotlight the voices of entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the marketplace across the continent. This week, we are featuring Efosa Ojomo. Efosa's mindset around social change shifted after working in the nonprofit sector. From 2009 to 2019, he served as the co-founder and president of Poverty Stops Here, an organization focused on alleviating poverty in developed countries, but he soon found a better way. In 2013, Efosa enrolled in Harvard Business School, where he learned about how marketplace innovation could help restore nations. Soon after, he shut the doors of his nonprofit and began researching and promoting disruptive innovation with the Clayton Christensen Institute. Today, he is the global prosperity lead of the organization and the co-author of The Prosperity Paradox with Clayton Christensen and Karen DeLeon. He will also be joining us as the co-host in future episodes, but today he gives us a vision of how innovation can make the world a better and more prosperous place. Efosa, it's wonderful to have you back with us today. It's been a while since we've spoken. For some people, you will be a very familiar name with your book, The Prosperity Paradox. And for others, it'll be a new name. So we're delighted to talk to you about really the role that innovation can play in lifting nations out of poverty. But before we dive into that, we'd love to get a little bit of the backstory. You had a job, a successful career, and then you decided to start a nonprofit. And that really just took you in a completely different direction. So can you walk us through that pivot in your career and, and what happened? Yeah, yeah, Ruben. And indeed, it's really good to be here with you today. Yeah, I was fortunate to come to the U.S. for college when I was 16. And as you said, I got a job uh, as an engineer and, and life was good. I mean, since 2005, I'm working. And the, I mean, America, it's an amazing country. 
and I'm firmly connected to the American dream, right? I bought a house, car, and everything was going well. Then around 2008, I started reading books on poverty, development, economics. And, you know, I think everyone or most people, especially believers, sort of the older you get, you sort of know yourself and you start to know when something is going on. And as I'm reading these books, they captivated me like nothing had ever captivated me before. In fact, part of why I studied engineering is because I didn't, I didn't really like reading uh, back in the day. And as an engineer, you didn't really have to read a lot. So I'm reading At the End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs, uh, The Bottom Billion, Paul Collier. I mean, these things are just captivating me. I read several others and it got to a point where I was like, oh my goodness, I have to do something about this. And you see, much of the literature I was reading at the time, much of development is really connected to this idea of going somewhere and helping people. Um, and, you know, the best way you help people is start a nonprofit because, you know, they're too poor or too fill in the blank, right? Uneducated, too sick. They can't help themselves. So I started a nonprofit in 2009. And the idea was to go into, you know, really poor and struggling communities in Nigeria to build wells and fund some other development initiatives. Did that for a while, but it, it didn't quite work out. So that was sort of my transition. It's a short transition from like working as an engineer. And then I started moonlighting as a nonprofit guy. Well, that was the beginning of my journey to where I am today. So that sounds really familiar. Um, I, I was on a similar journey and had this realization that the impact that I cared about and that I wanted to see wasn't going to happen through the nonprofit. So what was your aha, your breakthrough moment where you realized that business had a role to play? So that, that was also another long journey. Um, that took a while before I got to the point of understanding business had a role to play. But once I started the nonprofit, uh, it was pretty clear how, at least the way we were operating, that model would have been very difficult to sustain. So we'd go, we'd raise money from friends and family or just, you know, anyone who would get wind of the organization called Poverty Stops Here. And we'd go into a community and build a well, uh, just for, as an example. And then after maybe six to nine months, would you know, I would get a call uh, from a representative like connected to the community that the well was broken and i'd have to scramble and figure out how to fix it i mean i'm i remember i'm all the way back in the u.s now going to nigeria once a year for a couple of weeks and, and i'd figure out how do i send someone to fix the well in the community it was just really hard and so it was apparent to me that that model was I mean, if it was going to work, it'd be very difficult to sustain. And the other thing that occurred to me was water is amazing. Uh, water is life. You need water. But like, if you, if you provide water to you know, people in a community that don't have, say, sanitation, don't have access to health care or education or employment, I mean, I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, this is such a monumental, colossal, big problem that... I, there's no way I can fix it, right? And and so as much as we were, you know, sort of doing what we could with the organization, there was this sense of like, wow, what impact are we even really having? Because we left many of the people we met poor, even after we left their communities, after we made these investments. 
Um, and that's what led me to business school, where I had the great, great fortune of meeting and collaborating with the late Professor Clay Christensen. And it was him who really changed the way I think about poverty, prosperity, business, innovation, and things like that. That's really where it happened. But it took about, you know, we started Poverty Stops here in 2009, and it wasn't until 2015 or 2016 that the shift started to happen for me. Fosa, that's really a great story. I work a lot with nonprofits and with folks who want to do good in society, and many of them go through the same journey you went through or are still on that journey. <laughs> and I would love for you to just delve a bit into this whole realization that as you try to solve one problem, you discover multiple other problems and ultimately the root cause of those problems. What would you say to those who kind of have come with a good charity mindset as Christians wanting to help those in need? How can they kind of fast track that realization that you went through and what are some red flags that they can look out for in that journey? Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, this is really difficult because, I mean, the word charity, if you created um, two columns and you said, okay, positive association words, negative association, like charity almost always is in the positive column, right? People who want to give of themselves, their resources to help other people. At least my, my belief is that many people who go into struggling communities with this charity mindset are trying to help, trying their best. And they're doing so in the context of a world or an industry where that is the norm, right? When we went into these communities and we went and say built a well or funded some education initiatives, all the feedback I got, not almost all, like all the feedback I got was positive. Like people thought, oh, Efosa, look at what you're doing in your spare time. You're so amazing. You're this, you're that. Even though I would cringe, but like all the feedback is good. So I think we have to recognize that first, that it's the dominant way we believe or think these issues should be solved. But the other thing that I think people should be very aware of is do your best to ask some relatively simple questions. And these are questions we asked, right? Number one, uh, we built five wells and virtually all of them broke, right? And I asked like, huh, what is different about building this sixth well that is going to cause it not to break? Like, just to be honest with myself, even though no one who gave us money was asking about the status of the wells or were they breaking, were they working, they just saw pictures when we commissioned the wells and everybody was happy. So you have to be honest with yourself and you have to ask, huh, is this thing I'm doing really sustainable? Because remember, you're asking people for hard-earned resources, even though they're people in wealthy countries, like money is hard to come by. And is this thing sustainable, right? That's the first question. And when I asked that question, I found out it was really hard for me because the projects we were working on were really not sustainable. The second question, which I learned from Clay was more so, um, you know, the idea of alleviating poverty or trying to help people who are struggling is interesting, but like I've never met someone who, you know, when they graduate from extreme poverty, 
or they go from making $2 a day to $3 or $4. I mean, they have a big party and they're excited. They call all the community members and say, man, we are no longer living in poverty. It's a construct that, you know, we who are fortunate to live in wealthy countries and do a lot of analysis have created. And I think the goal really is prosperity. Right? The goal is, you know, people want dignity. They want a decent like life for themselves and their families. And so really asking yourself, are the things we're doing going to lead to people to have like this dignity? Like I think providing water and some of these other resources are, they're good. But again, you sort of want to ask yourself these questions. Will it lead to this dignity? And the last one is really, am I doing the best I can to work myself out of a job? In other words, the investments I'm making in this community, right? If I keep making them for the next 5, 10, 20 years, can I be confident that this community will no longer need EFOSA or EFOSA's nonprofit or, you know, Ruben's organization or so on, right? Can I be confident? And if you can, then keep marching along that way. If you can't, then it'd be good to reevaluate, like, what are we really doing here? And when we did that, I think for us, the best thing for us was to shut down the organization because we didn't have the resources and capabilities to to organize ourselves in a way that, you know, that we could answer those questions in a way that was, we were confident with the answers we would get. I love that. And I like the fact that you were humble enough to recognize this and also strong enough to walk away. Were there some spiritual principles that gave you that strength? Because so many young men and women on the continent, you know, I always say, why can't you walk away? They said, what will people say? What will my family say? What will society say? You were able to surmount those pressures. What was it about you or your faith that enabled you to walk away with integrity and take that difficult decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope that when people hear this story and they hear, you know, me walking away, and, and that they focus on God's grace in my life. Because every good thing that I'm able to do, and I don't say this because we're on a podcast, it's really as a result of God's grace. You know, the reason I got into this, perhaps this story would help, is I read a professor out of New York University. His book is called The White Man's Burden. And he talked about why many efforts, right, from wealthy countries to help poor countries have failed. It's called William Easterly, is his name. And he dedicated the book to an a 10-year-old girl in Ethiopia, her name is Amarich, and he talked about how she'd have to wake up at 3 a.m. every morning, walk miles, fetch firewood, and then walk to the city to sell. And I remember where I was. It was February 2008, reading that book in my room in Wisconsin, very cold, and I was just crying. And that's really what led to starting Poverty Stops Here, because I said, her story is not an anomaly, right? Like her story is like, I would say, close your eyes and pick an African child at the time, at least, maybe even in a rural area, then you would find an Amarich. So it's not like, oh, it's just happening in a small corner of the world. And so I said, I need to do something about this. I'm thankful that that was my entry into this world because almost every project or every initiative I've been involved in I've thought about it through the lens of Amarich, right? Through the lens of, 
is what we're doing going to create a world where there would not be as many Amareches in the world in the future? And I think that was just a gift. You know, my guess is if I came into this through a different way, maybe I wouldn't have had the wherewithal to walk away. Maybe I would have been too concerned about what people thought. But I think, you know, God helped me there with that introduction to this world through the lens of this little girl. And I'd say he has also helped me because it's really difficult for me to lie to myself. I just don't have peace when I'm like, you know, you can lie to everybody in the world, but I'm like, is this thing really having impact, right? Is this really, I'm like, ah, it's really not, right? It's not, it doesn't mean it's not doing good. It's not, it doesn't mean it's not helping here and there, but the kind of impact and desire God has placed in, in, in our hearts, he helps us, right? And I think he helped me see that, you know, it feels like maybe this isn't the best way to spend your time knowing that, you know, <laughs> you're not going to live forever. Um, and so what if you spent it somewhere else? And so I would say it was just by his grace that I was able to walk away. Yeah. Now that's really good of us. And I think what really strikes me is that you were motivated by your heart and that remains a driving force and remains kind of what ignites you for your work today. But over time, your head realized that actually there is a different approach to this problem. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the powerful things that you alluded to is ability to learn from failure. And it strikes me that successful countries and indeed successful people are those who learn from failure, make many mistakes, but get up and improve and do something different and do something better. And sometimes our cultures prevent us from doing that. Our cultures have a kind of a culture of shame, which kind of, if we fail, then we can never be seen. We can never be in society again. Um, but actually, we should be celebrating failure and understanding how do we move forward from that. And I'd love you just to kind of illustrate and unpack this. Earlier today, you shared the example of South Korea on Twitter, how they began really manufacturing the most basic of goods. Yeah. Samsung began as a fish trader. And then yeah. upgrade, kind of beginning to produce black and white TVs, which were pretty terrible TVs. And uh, <laughs> yeah. they produced some of the worst cars in the world. And back in 1970, South Korea and places like Singapore were, in fact, poorer than countries like Ghana. And yet, over time, of course, gone ahead leaps and bounds. They've industrialized, they've developed really thriving industries. So can you unpack for us a little bit about kind of that story of the Asian economic development. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you started by talking about failure and how important it is. And in fact, I've been thinking a lot more about that recently as I think about my work and research and how failure is learning. It is the process by which we fail that we learn. And if anyone should be good at failing and learning, it should be the Christ follower. It has to be the Christ follower. And one thing I'll say, then I'll, I'll jump on the Asian economic miracle story quickly, is we have, I think, perfected the art of sinning. God has perfected the art of forgiving. And so, you know, everything about the Christian faith really needs to point to the cross and the humility that it ignites in us, right? So if you think about our cycle, what we do on a daily basis, hourly basis, the Fosa wakes up, sins, repent, repeat, that like, that's my cycle. And God is just on a continuous cycle, a continuous loop of like forgiving, 
right? And so if we take that, which like happens to the average Christian, that's just what we do, and apply it to business, apply it to innovation, then the idea that we failed, we made a decision that didn't work out, should encourage us to learn. And so if we connect that sort of failing as learning to the Asian economic miracle, I mean, it is truly, truly humbling to learn about how many countries in the region, whether it's Japan, South Korea, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, like just to learn how they started, I would say 70, 80 years ago and were dirt poor. It's hard to appreciate that today because they're wealthy. And that's one of the things that happens when you gain prosperity. You know, even in the United States, we cannot imagine a poor America. But you don't have to go back too far. 150, 120 years, this country, there were, you know, people were really poor. But what happened in those countries is it's like they they told themselves, this is the model by which you become prosperous. The model you just described, Samsung said, we are going to keep learning how to build better and better products that more and more people can afford. Like we are addicted to that model. And their TVs, the ones you referenced, were so bad when they started making TVs that they used to hand them out for free with magazine subscriptions. So imagine you get a subscription to, you know, the Atlantic or you know, the New York Times, and you get a free TV. I mean, how bad does your TV have to be? And this was a time when, you know, electronics were not cheap or inexpensive 30, 40 years ago, right? So we have to appreciate how bad their products were, but they just kept learning and building and learning and building. And I think for me, at least, and especially as it relates to my work as a researcher in the spaces, I'm there is this idea that we know the answer to poverty problems, right? We Like we already know, you go into a community, this happened to me, um, that, that is poor, they, have, they lack water, they lack schools, they lack hospitals, they lack good governance, they lack all these things. And so it's just like, look, just provide this stuff. Just, it's easy. I mean, go to America, go to UK. You know, why can't we fill in the black? That always... Uh, it's a question that we often ask ourselves. And I think it does take a certain level of patience and humility to walk into a room. You see problems that you're familiar with. Okay, there's no water, no, no food, no schools, no this, no that. But maybe the solution isn't just the provision of these resources. Maybe there's a fundamentally deeper problem here. And to walk in asking questions, not proffering like answers because, you know, you have degrees or you're, you know, the smartest person. Like, it takes a different approach. And I think that's the approach that I'm lobbying for many, many more of us to take. Because sometimes the most obvious answer to a problem, you know, it may not be the solution at all. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged by the, for me, when I think about the Asian economic miracle, it gives me hope that many countries in Africa can create prosperity. Like I firmly believe that. Uh, it's not something I just like, oh, you know, it's connected to my work. So I like, I firmly believe it. Because if you read the history, you will see it happen. 
And there's this thing we say in Nigeria, and, and, and Didi can back me up, like, you know, you, you go to school, <laughs> Nigerian parents, if your kids are not at top of the class, they'll say, yeah, the people at the top of the class, who are, they don't have two heads, right? So <laughs> there's something about, like, the Asians, like, they don't have two heads. Americans, they don't have two heads. We can do it, too, you know? So, yeah. Brilliant. So there's a lot of richness in there about to innovate, we need to ask good questions. We need to listen and observe well. Uh, we need to try things because if we don't try, we won't learn by experience. And we're highly likely to fail. And then we go back and we start again till we begin to get it right. Um, and, and I think there is something as well about actually, it, it's not about the smartest kid in the class. Um, often they don't make the best entrepreneurs. They make the best people at uh, scoring well in exams and maybe getting into top universities. But the entrepreneurs are often the people with the B and the C grades, the people who are mm -hmm. slight misfits who ask the awkward questions that the teacher in the classroom doesn't like. Um, so I think we need more of those misfits in our culture and in society, more failures in society who we actually recognize and celebrate and encourage to keep trying again. Um, can you give us an example of some of these misfit companies in Africa that you're seeing who are really innovating well? Are, are there examples that you can share with us? Yes, yes, several. And many of these, like, they don't make sense on the surface of it. So, in fact, the first guest we had on this podcast, I think it was uh, Strive uh, Masiyua. I listened to that and um, he built Econet and, you know, was involved in construction and other companies. You know, when you look at, you know, global telecommunications company, when you look at that feat, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, it's like, whoa, what was he thinking? How in the world could he have thought this would ever work? All the indications pointed to never, never, never. That's just not going to happen. Yet, you know, look at fast forward today, and we cannot imagine an Africa without sort of this mobile telecommunications like network connection. We can't. And I think that's the beauty about uh, what in our research we call market creating innovations. Um, they are these amazing innovations that make products and services that are very complicated and expensive. Uh, they make them simple and affordable so many more people in society can afford them. Uh, when this happens, a domino effect sort of occurs. You have more people who are employed, more people are getting access to products and services. Companies and individuals who have jobs are paying taxes, and so they are helping governments do their job, because that's another issue that we can talk a bit about. Um, but you're helping governments, right? Because that's, you know, we, we complain a lot about African governments, but on, on average, uh, the, the average African government has about $650 per year to spend per person. Nigeria is like about 200 uh, Kenya, 400. And so it's not a lot of money. The U.S. is spending about $30,000 per person per year. Uh, Norway, Sweden, they're spending you know, close to 40000 And so it's going to be difficult for African governments to accomplish all the things they've set out to without help. And so that's an impact of these market-creating innovations. Now, organizations that are doing it today, I mean, there's a company called Kobo360, run by Obi, uh, Ozo, and Ife. And what they're trying to do is make logistics a lot simpler, a lot easier. Um, 
Obviously, you know, the infrastructure issues uh, in, in Africa are a problem, but how do you move goods from point A to point B? I understand the affinity for like fintech and that's great better payment solutions but at the end of the day we still need to figure out how to move atoms right like we need to figure out how to move goods and services and i always tell people you can't really eat digital bits and bytes so uh, you need to figure out how to move things and kobo 360 is doing that there's a company based out of ghana but becoming pan-african called m pharma and m pharma is they started out really making software to help pharmaceuticals uh, better manage their supply chains, but now they've gone full on, almost vertical and horizontally integrated. They have some pharmacies of their own. They have healthcare professionals because many people in Africa get their care by going to the equivalent of like a pharmacy, uh, not necessarily a doctor's office. So M Pharma is doing that. and. One last one, Yoko. So Yoko is, um, uh, is think of a square, or I think it's now called block. So Jack Dorsey, uh, he, the co you know, founder, former CEO, founder of Twitter, um, had this company called Block, and, and it's essentially a financial services company that helps small businesses better manage, take payments, manage their, their inventory, financials. Uh, so you get that sort of market intelligence and Yoko is based in South Africa and they're really trying to provide this service, a similar service for small businesses across the region. Um, so there are so many others that are coming up across the continent today. And I, my hypothesis is if these organizations succeed, the continent becomes prosperous. Um, if they don't, then it will struggle for a while, right? Regardless of how much aid Africa continues to get, which isn't really even that much when you think about it. Um, <laughs> so I think it's about $40 per person per year, like all the aid. And much of that doesn't even land in Africa. Uh, over two thirds is spent in the wealthy countries that do give the aid. So like, you know, we do need to this paradigm shift that supports enterprise organizations that are really trying to make products and services simple and affordable for people. Thank you for sharing those inspiring stories and uh, for underscoring the importance of changing our mindsets and having a new vision. And just as we start to round up, are there specific lenses that we should use to pinpoint market-creating innovations? You've kind of alluded to it by saying, you know, it has to address the needs of people. It has to be demand-driven. You can't eat tech for breakfast. But what are some very clear indicators that an idea is worth pursuing and that it will generate sustainable wealth? Yeah, I think the, the first thing I would point to is this concept of struggle. You know, the way I often describe it is, you know, if when I'm in a room and I ask everyone, hey, how important is climate change? How serious is climate change? And, and in, in Didi, I know you just came from Davos, so I'm sure that was a hot topic there. Um, everyone raises their hand, like climate change, big deal, very important. Then I ask, how many of you woke up today, like honest and Really, this climate change you say is a problem. It was a burden on your heart. Like you made, you know, nine out of the 10 decisions you've made today, 
thinking about this problem of climate change. And maybe one or two people raise their hands. And what I described there is it's a problem. It's a very big problem, but it's not a struggle. And so we have to figure out the struggles that many people are encountering. The good thing is, I guess it's from an innovation standpoint, it's good. From a just life standpoint, it's not so good. In Africa, there are very many struggles. You don't need to go too far to just identify struggles from housing to access to credit for your business uh, or even just consumer credit to <laughs> to clearing products from a port uh, to moving things from point A to point B, logistics. Like, there's just so many struggles. And so I think... For me, that would be the first is identify a struggle. The second is, you know, you then have to, like if you identify a struggle that you don't have the capabilities to solve, the struggle that requires raising millions or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, well, that may not be the best route to go, right? So I think if you look at entrepreneurs like Strive and Mo Ibrahim and those guys, they had access to a wealth of networks that they could bring into a room and say, let's go and solve this problem, this problem that's causing a lot of struggles. You know, I don't particularly have those kinds of networks. And so you want to solve the struggle that aligns with your capabilities. Um, and so that, that would be the second thing. After you identify a struggle, you look at your capabilities, look at the access, the resources you have, the things that you enjoy doing, the things you don't enjoy doing, you have to assess that. And then the last thing I would say in this regard is, is like perseverance. Just having the perseverance to know you are creating a market. You're not simply selling a product or a service. And when you find yourself creating a market, you almost always have to do so many other things that are connected to making that market flourish, right? So it would be different if, you know, just to make it tangible. If I were going to sell a new drug in the US, um, new medicine, well, there are systems and networks I can plug into. There are pharmacies all over the place. There are doctors, doctor networks, things that I, I could just, I, I create the drug, I get my FDA approval, I'm, I'm good to go. I plug it into the network. Well, in many African countries, you do need to do the groundwork of creating many of these systems. When you create these systems, these are systems that outlive you. I mean, these are systems that create jobs, that help people and create significant wealth. Now, one of the reasons I'm encouraged is when I look at, you know, because to do the work I do, I do have to go back and read up a little bit on history and, okay, how did America do this? And, you know, how did all these other countries do it? And, you know, absent one or two countries where they had leaders who were incredibly forward thinking and yeah, the leaders we all sort of talk about today, the Lee Kuan Yews of the world, most countries, they really sort of just like figured this out over time. It wasn't a straightforward path, but the entrepreneurs, right, they, that created these markets, they had to build these systems. You know, when Henry Ford was building 
the car that the average American would drive. He was building gas stations and distribution, like freight lines and steel mills and so on. And so that model is consistent. And so I think as an entrepreneur looking for these opportunities, identify the struggle, you figure out your own capabilities, and then persevere because you know, you're really going to be building a system. And if you're successful, then you, you, you sort of get the likes of what you know, Strive, Masayua, and Co are enjoying today. Um, so yeah, that's how I would approach it. I love it. The struggle is real, but the opportunities with the struggle and the message today is use what you have to build something in your ecosystem and be prepared to shape the ecosystem with a lot of tenacity, grit, um, and partnerships. Fantastic. You know, we always like to close out each episode by hearing what God is teaching you right now. What have you found in God's word that has stuck out to you recently that you can share with us? Yeah, forgive me, I'm all over the place. Um, I, I recently started this book. Yeah, the bookends of the Christian life is what it's called. And it's talks about the bookends are on one end is justification by faith and on the other end is sanctification. And so you know, if we read Romans 1, you know, Galatians 3, we get these, these messages, right, that were justified by faith. And it's really helping me see that this is something I struggle with and maybe some listeners struggle with this. I I'm thankful for this, but I was born sort of as a, I'm sort of a rules follower kind of guy. I, I don't like to, you know, if, if there's a red light and there's like, you know, no cars coming. And even if it's nighttime, I'm like, look, man, the light is red. I don't want any trouble. I'm a rules follower. Um, and as a rules follower, it's, it's easy for me to connect my faith and my justification to the things that I do well and the things that I don't do well. And intellectually, I know that's not the case, but just learning that there's nothing I can do to earn God's love and nothing I can do that he would take it away because it's really about him, like, like God, who he is and his nature. It's just a great reminder for me. Uh, and I hope it's encouraging to anyone listening who has struggled with that a little bit or a lot, uh, like he loves us in like an incomprehensible kind of way. Like we can never understand. You're going to read all the books in the world, study all the saints in the world. You will never understand how much God loves us. And that is what I hope that we are able to communicate to people who listen to us, that they feel his love just by listening to us. Um, so thank you. Uh, so much for, for this opportunity. Yeah. Brilliant. Now that's really encouraging, Afosa. And I think it's just a real assurance to everyone who's on this journey, no matter where you are, whether you're experiencing success or if you're experiencing failure, God loves you and he loves you equally and regardless. So thank you so much. Before we close out, we're going to do a rapid fire, uh, short questions, just with, with quick answers on, on a couple of key topics. And so I just love to kind of fire the questions at you and get your kind of your 60 second reply on them. So the first is, 
What advice would you give to your younger self in helping you succeed and, and, and get ahead as an entrepreneur? Um, uh, try more things. Uh, be okay with the mistakes. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say go out and make mistakes. I mean, that's not like, you, know, you don't want to wake up and like, I want to go make mistakes. But I would say try more things. Be comfortable with mistakes and tell yourself whenever you fail. Failure is learning. Failure is really the beginning, right? It's like, oh, that didn't work out the way I thought. What can I learn? How can I help uh, people? I think that for me would, would have been huge. Um, what role does community and friendships play in your journey and helping you uh, grow and succeed? Uh, monumental, very monumental. You know, again, I've been blessed to have a very supportive family and I think the journey of entrepreneurship is different from many others because it's really a journey and it can be lonely, it can be difficult. And so having people that you can do life with or share life with is, is very important. You know, one quick story on that. When the last time I was in Nigeria, was in November, and I remember my good sister and Didi came from where she was. She had an event that evening to the bookstore where I was doing a book reading and she just came to like hang out. We didn't even sit down. We just like, the event was almost over and we just talked. And just that act of like her coming and navigating Lagos traffic, which is where we were, is not easy. But that meant so much to me. And that kind of community is really important. Amazing. Amazing. That's really encouraging. If there's one struggle or challenge that you could solve for people in Nigeria, what would that be? Oh my gosh, that's a good one. Well, let, let me do two. I'm very sorry. So one is just waking up every day, and I say this as therapy for myself, with the knowledge of how much the creator of the universe loves you. Like just the knowledge of how much the creator loves you. Like that, that, I think, can change your perspective on a lot of things. The other one, which is more sort of temporal, is the notion that the solutions to many problems in Nigeria will not come from the government. That's a mindset shift thing. And I, I think if we, when we stop waiting for the government, more of us will take matters into our own hands and figure out how to help the government, right? It's not to say they're not important. They are very important. But I think if we have that paradigm shift to let me see how I can help them, especially the elites in Nigeria, those who have more than they can probably spend. That, I think, would be a huge paradigm shift. Brilliant. Ndidi, uh, final word to you. Uh, what problem would you like to encourage young entrepreneurs of Nigeria to solve or other African countries? Well, the biggest challenge we're facing right now in Nigeria is insecurity linked to youth unemployment. <laughs> Um, it's a huge challenge. I'll repeat that. Insecurity linked to youth unemployment. And so what I would love to scale are entrepreneurship programs that focus on what Afosa has just discussed. Problems in your community that you can solve that are demand-driven, that um, employ yourself and others. We've done this at a small scale through many initiatives we've started, but really ramping it up. Uh, my friend has a term called mass entrepreneurship on how you create those jobs at scale uh, is really critical at this time. To address the insecurity problems, we have to give our young people alternatives. 
And so that's what keeps me up at night. And I think we need to rally our community around collectively solving these challenges. Brilliant. Afosa and Didi, I'm really looking forward to continuing these conversations over the coming months and really just finding where the best ideas, the best entrepreneurs are on the continent who are tackling some of these really big issues that we face, but bringing hope and bringing solutions. We're not waiting for solutions to come from elsewhere. We're not waiting for solutions to come from the government. Uh, We've been given talents, resources, and now is our opportunity to stand up, to be counted, to make a difference on our continent. So thank you so much. Thank you. This is an amazing time with uh, the both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Efosa. I'm excited about partnering with you to tell more African stories and to continue to change mindsets and to give hope to our people that together we will create this prosperity and ensure that every single entrepreneur out there is equipped with the skills, tools, support, and encouragement to keep pushing. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible through the special help of all our friends. Thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country. We are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends.